Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Tui Vu. I'm co-founder and president of the Global Mentor Network, where we're democratizing mentorship and leadership development for everyone. And I'm also a longtime journalist and the former co-host and the former host of KQED's Newsroom. It is my absolute pleasure to be your moderator for today's special program, saluting, saluting the longtime host of KQED Forum. Of course, that's Michael Krasny, my friend. And this, is, uh, this program is being held in partnership with KQED. The Commonwealth Club, of course, has shifted from in-person programs to virtual events, and we are grateful for the support of our viewers. We appreciate your considering donating to the club, and if you wish to do so, please text the word DONATE to 415-329-4231, or visit the club's website at commonwealthclub.org. We also want to remind you to submit questions for Michael via the, gas, the, via the chat room next to your screen, and I'll get to as many as possible later in the program. And now it is my pleasure to introduce the man of the hour, our honored guest, Michael Krasny, renowned KQED radio host. After 28 years, Michael will retire following his forum broadcast on February 12th. Michael has interviewed some of the most prominent newsmakers and some and political and cultural figures of the past half century, including Maya Angelou, William Buckley, President Jimmy Carter, Cesar Chavez, Francis Ford Coppola, Jerry Garcia, Allen Ginsberg, John McCain, Toni Morrison, Salman Rushdie, Carl Sagan, Bernie Sanders, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and President Barack Obama. And that is just to name a few, folks. Michael's broadcasting career began auspiciously in the late 1970s as host of a weekly program on KTIM-FM, a small Marin County rock station. He later moved to ABC in 1983 where he worked in both radio and television. He has remained professor of English at San Francisco State University and has also taught at Stanford University, the University of San Francisco, and the University of California, San Francisco, as well as at the Fulbright International Institutes. We would, of course, be remiss if we didn't show you some of Michael's amazing on-air work. So before we talk to Michael, let's enjoy this video. Academy Award-winning director and Academy Award nominee, Robert Redford. Jane Fonda. Spike Lee. Dallas Walker. Joan Rivers. Back in business, an aided Well, those, of course, are the distinctive and dulcet sounds of the inimitable Eartha Kitt. Thank you very much. One of this nation's most distinguished literary figures, John Updike's novels have won Pulitzer Prizes, the National Book Award. I've waited a long time for this. I'm delighted to have you here. Welcome. Delighted to be here. Retired boxer Mike Tyson is with us, promising to talk about everything, and that's what he does in his one-man show. Mike Tyson, Undisputed Truth. How you doing, Mr. Kraft? I'm doing okay. Good the Craster. We with the Craster. <laughs> he is with the Craster. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Carlos Santana joins us in studio for this Forum Hour. Sweet Judy Blois, it's so good to meet you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. The gypsy rover came over the hill, that one. Through the valley shady. Yeah. Whistled and he sang sang till the green woods rang. And he won the heart of a lady. It's the first time I've ever sang publicly. It'll be the last probably. But you can join (laughs) us a number of ways. You can call us now at our toll-free number, whether you're listening on radio, internet, or a serious satellite. The number to call, 866-733-6786. And you can join us uh, and join us live. You're a pretty mellow guy. You know what I mean? Like Charlie Rose type of guy. I thought you'd be a more Howard Stern guy. Talk about when I ran when when I came to my wife's house. Where did you get that Come on. impression? Came when I came to my wife's house. Let's talk about when I came to my wife's house. Okay, did the listeners hear you singing along with yourself there? It's too early. Well, Michael, welcome. Wow. Congratulations on an amazing 28 years. So maybe I should call you the Kraz, as Mike Tyson would say. Hey, that's what they called me in high school. I didn't know Mike Tyson was going to call me that, but that was a nice surprise. (laughs) 
It's good to well, be with you too, Tweet. Thank uh, you for doing this. My friend, I cannot believe that you are actually stepping down. I think many people can't believe you're actually stepping down. Um, has it set in? How are you feeling? Feeling okay. Um, you know, it's a kind of bittersweet thing. But at this point, I think um, it's time to look for other chapters in my life. And it's time to kind of relax a bit. Uh, I'm at that stage of life. I'm pretty much retired from teaching. My wife is pretty much retired uh, from her profession uh, as a lawyer. And we have a new grandchild. And so um, I used to think, uh, I used to kid around with Holly Kernan, our content uh, executive, and say uh, they're going to have to take me out in the casket. But, you know, uh, as much as I like to quote Mark Twain, who said, age is mind over matter, you don't mind, it doesn't matter. Guess what? It matters. Uh, <laughs> and here I am, uh, not necessarily ready for any kind of geriatric uh, taking care of, but certainly ready to at least pull back and yeah. do other things. Well, you, you certainly deserve this moment. You have brought joy and knowledge um, and thoughtfulness to so many people in the Bay Area. You know, I, 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 this is a chance to really get to know you a little better. You're always, you know, on the other side of the microphone. Now we're going to turn the tables on you. And, and I'm curious you know, about your interviewing um, and, and how that all got started. Did you always want to be an interviewer? What was the catalyst for that um, in your career? Because you were teaching literature for a very long time. Yeah, I was more a scholar and a literature critic uh, and an educator, but uh, I liked the idea of using my voice and had sort of fancifully thought one day maybe I might do that. But Mostly I was writing political articles and things of that nature and writing scholarship. And so what happened was um, at San Francisco State, uh, a fellow by the name of Frank Moakley, who some may recognize that name, his brother, excuse me, his cousin, his first cousin was congressman in Massachusetts. He was head of audiovisual. And he said, Krasny, I think you'd be a good one to do an interview with Gore Vidal. And uh, I thought, yeah, I'd like to do that. Uh, I've written about this in a book that Stanford Press published uh, called Off Mike. It was a baptism of fire. It was a very difficult interview. Um, he was somewhat inebriated, and um, mm. I didn't know that this would necessarily lead me into a career, but I, w I was sort of bit by the idea, and I thought, I like to do this. I have a kind of uh, insatiable curiosity that likes to find out about people, likes to find out about what they think and what's behind their work, and so... I kind of invented myself as an interviewer. Like you said earlier, at a small rock station, we did a yeah. uh, little program called Beyond the Hot Tub in Marin County. I gave it that oh. name. It's a little embarrassing <laughs> now to think about. but I hope the show isn't as sketchy as the name sounds. No, it wasn't sketchy at all. It was just, you know, Marin was identified with hedonism and with hot tubs. And even George Bush Sr. talked about Marin with hot tubs. And I thought there were people here who were doing serious work, who were making real strides in terms of the arts and, uh, and culture and intellectual kinds of things. And yeah. I sought them out and that was the program. Yeah. So then you um, came to host forum in 1993. And when you took over that role, what did you set out to do with the program? Well, I had, I suppose what <laughs> now I could somewhat pompously call a vision of things. And, and forum was largely a, a, a public policy program having to do with local policies. Uh, and I thought, why not do the arts? And so that little, those little clips, that little montage you saw kind of was reflective of that. Uh, and why not, in fact, do international news and national news and cover state news? Why not, in other words, just do things that are current and things that are in the news and things that simply – I wanted listeners to turn on the radio and not know what to expect. They could expect what I hope would be high discourse and an in-depth kind of interview – uh, with either a panel of people or a one-on-one -on -one interview, but I wanted to kind of keep listeners guessing as to what we'd be talking about. It wasn't always just something in the news. The yeah. great thing about the resources of the Bay Area is you have so many, really not on places like the Commonwealth Club where people come used to come to give speeches non-virtually, but the universities and you had the World Affairs Council. And so we were able to draw on a lot of sources and bring in really some high-powered people, to put it mildly. And we have so many amazing luminaries of our own here in the Bay Area, and a number of them have been in your show. You have, um, you know, you have a, a great soft sweet spot for literature and for authors. And we have a few 
surprises sprinkled throughout this uh, broadcast for you. I think we're going to throw in one of those surprises right now. Uh, Author Amy Tan has a little message she wants to deliver to you. Let's roll that tape. Michael, we've known each other since our buff body hot tub days, which was a mortifying experience for me and became your longstanding joke, a tradition at every event where we've shared the stage. And we've talked, of course, about my books on your show and also conversed once about jazz singers and recently about dogs when we did a fundraiser for Animal Rescue. Everyone knows you've been a sucker for serving as MC for any kind of fundraiser. You must have done thousands. But now not many know that you and I visited a farm with 28 miniature horses where a newborn colt tried to nurse on a prominent part of your body that you still fortunately retain. We've talked over private dinners about politics and the wonderful qualities of mutual friends who died tragically too soon. We talked about the state of our health and the state of our nation, but never did we talk about you retiring. So I confess I was shocked to hear you had made that decision. So let me say this now. I have been interviewed by hundreds and hundreds of radio journalists around the world, and you are simply the best. You actually read the books, which can't be said about most interviewers. You knew the context of those books, and the changes in my life over the course of my writing them. And with your breadth of knowledge on everything from literature and politics to social justice, history, and art, you seamlessly integrated current events into the themes of literature, making it apparent that books are relevant and revelatory, integral to understanding ourselves, our separate and shared communities, and the human condition. I take comfort in knowing we still have many long conversations over dinner to come. Albeit without the mic in front of us or the clock telling us we have 30 seconds to wrap up and split the check or fight over it. I look forward to that time when we can dispense with six feet of distance and can give each other a big hug. Lou and I are so grateful to be your friend. There you go. Lovely. Grateful for her friendship. And uh, it's true that I was nuzzled in a way that she described euphemistically by this little cult. She got it on video, in fact. (laughs) We should have had her share that video. That would have been fun. Or maybe not. (laughs) Maybe it's never, maybe it should never see the light of day. Um, you know, we have some questions already coming in from the audience. I have plenty more questions for you, but I also want to make sure we get to um, audience members as well. So let's go ahead and jump to some of those. And this is tied to a question that I had for you anyway, which is, you know, how do you go about choose, choosing your interview subjects? What makes them compelling? And this ties into um, one of the questions here, which is, what makes a great guest? Well, we we have a curating process, and I have a team, and it's a wonderful team of people that work with me. Um, and we work in a very collective way. We share ideas about what would be a good program, and for the most part, we're guided by uh, the sensibilities that we have and what we think our listeners most want to hear. I mean, we are serving the public, and that's our primary goal, and that is preeminent. Uh, the reality of good guests, though, is you want guests, and, and what you said before was was key to me. Um, You want guests, certainly, who are reflective of the Bay Area and of California. We've given primacy to that. We've moved away from all of the authors I used to do, I'm sad to say, in many ways, because news has sort of made itself felt, particularly in recent years during the Trump administration because of the pandemic uh, and because of really the search for racial justice and some of the outrageous and tragic things that have occurred in that context. We've made it uh, our, our concern to bring to our listeners what is primary. And you want guests on who can speak in informed ways, who are not only knowledgeable in the best sense of that word, but who can really uh, speak with clarity and lucidity and who can really speak with details too and speak fluidly and also in a cogent way. So you're looking for all of those things and you ideally want people who are passionate. But the most important thing is 
Do they know a lot about their subject? Do they love to talk about their subject? In a sense, I'm an educator, and certainly my guests are, I like to think, educators. Certainly the callers and people who listen are educators. We're all sharing in this kind of community of education, and it's something that we take very seriously, and we hope that we certainly meet the demands of the listeners and also enlighten. Yeah. You bring us, uh, you bring up so many important points um, there, Michael. And we live in an era now where there's lots of disinformation. There are so many different media sources. People often don't know where to go for true information, for accurate information. And so this segues nicely into another um, question from the audience, which is how important is media literacy and how do we best fight disinformation? I think media literacy is vital. Um, I used to say the important thing was read from all sides. I try to do that, frankly. It used to be, in fact, when I started, I was just looking back uh, at uh, some old shows back in the early 90s when Clinton was president when I started and Frank Jordan was mayor of San Francisco and Gray Davis was governor of California. It was a different world then. And, you know, we were doing a lot more authors. We were had to kind of educate the audience and it's okay if we put people on from Hoover. You know, I would get these letters saying, why are you putting these fascists on from Hoover? And I said, don't you want to know the way they think, even if your politics are completely polarized and different from their politics? But we live very much in a different world now. And the fact of the matter is that you want the programs to be as useful and as practical to listeners as possible. And that involves sometimes not only trying to be uh, an oasis of knowledge and fair mm-hmm. and adjudicated knowledge, but also a place where people feel they can be comfortable and they can be at ease and they can listen and they're not listening to the yelling and they're not listening to the sensationalism and they're not listening to all the stuff that's out there that you really have to battle through. I mean, the reality is you can listen to MSNBC and listen to Fox uh, or watch those two networks and you're in two different cosmos. You're in completely, utterly different universes. And so the best way, I think, to be an educated person in terms of the media is to find the best media, the most authoritative and the most trustworthy media, and also the most diverse media that you possibly can. I know that as hosts, you, you as host of uh, Forum and uh, for myself, ho- uh, former host of KQED's newsroom, the preparation work that went into interviews, I don't know about you, but um, you know, in recent years, um, especially under the most recent um, administration before Biden, the amount of work that was involved just exploded. It was just an enormous amount of information to wade through to make sure that we were getting the most accurate information, the best information, and also ourselves as media folks to filter out what's real, what's not, but also to really stay still connected to the communities around us to be in touch with what they're hearing so we can help them break through the noise and some of the falsehoods as well. So were you finding it to be a tougher task for yourself as well? And how much um, preparation do you do do for an interview? It's not only a, a tough task, it's also one that carries with it a great deal of responsibility, which I hope we take I don't hope, I believe we take very seriously. I speak for the team here, I think. And I'm like a black hole in many ways. I mean, they feed me and I absorb a lot and they do uh, extraordinary work. Uh, plus I have all of my own sources. So you really try to uh, bring as best you can judgment and seriousness to the work uh, and present people with a panoply of ideas and hope that they will be able to see what is the closest to the truth that you can approximate. There's, I'm reminded when you asked that question to me about um, Neil Conan after he retired, many people remember him as a host of Talk of the Nation on NPR. And I said, Neil, do you miss it? And he said, I miss, you know, the interchange with the, the listeners and the people in the studio, not now during the pandemic, of course, but I don't miss all that preparation. Uh, it is, you know, from day to day, a lot of preparation. But I think for those journalists who take their work seriously, and I like to think that uh, I'm one of them, and I know you are one of them, and I certainly believe that the team we have uh, are all very much in that uh, corner. Uh, you learn as much as you can, and you expand your horizons, and you try to take in as much as you can, uh, and you try ultimately, above all, to be fair and to be judicious. 
And I think kindness and uh, a certain amount of um, uh, really empathy are very important here, too, in understanding what's going on in the news and being able to communicate it. I absolutely agree with that. Here's another question related to what you just said. How do you not over-prepare for an interview so as to allow for spontaneity? It's a good question because I think my own tendency, proclivity is a good word, is to over-prepare. But once you're on, at least once I'm on the air, and it's all, you know, uh, not being recorded, uh, I mean, it's all live, it's without a net. Uh, Sometimes I wish, I I get envious of Terry Gross because she can edit things and when I screw up or mess up, as I've done many times with a name or whatever, I can't go back and, and remedy it. Uh, it's just out there. Uh, and, and so you're constantly aware of the clock and what you have to do in terms of compressing and crystallizing and illuminating and doing all that's really incumbent upon you to do in the time that you have. And so it's a kind of high wire act, uh, especially when it's done with the kind of spontaneity that we like to think forum is done with, because as I said, we're not doing the editing that would make it perhaps better. Although some think, gee, maybe it's better because it's not edited. It's like jazz. It's improvisational. It has all those, you know, spontaneous kind of qualities to it. I find, however, that once I begin to be the traffic controller or the ringmaster or whatever you want to use, once I get up there like MTT with the baton, whatever your metaphor is for uh, someone who's a host of a program, I have to move on and I have to move through a lot and I just do it in the best way I can. I'm almost like, hate to use this metaphor because we've got a pandemic uh, that has to do with bats, but it's sort of like a bat in a cave. You know, I've always used that as a metaphor because you're trusting your radar and your instinct and you're just live and you have to be as instinctual and also as strongly on a trajectory as you possibly can be. Yeah, there are some days when you feel like you're running a three-ring circus and you've just got to go with the flow. Exactly. Some days it's not even a three-ring circus, it's about a 12-ring circus. There and you go. Some days all the flow can get really messed up, uh, almost be stopped in ways that you never had anticipated. I mean, you can it's, have all kinds of problems. Uh, it's one thing about doing it as long as I've done it is uh, I think from time to time, boy, Nothing like that could ever happen again, but then something different happens and surprises. Yeah. It's the beauty of life. <laughs> um, this is uh, a good question from a- another viewer. What is your most spontaneous interview and your favorite and the most embarrassing? That's three different types of interviews right there. Most spontaneous, favorite, and most embarrassing. Well, I think it was spontaneous when you saw me singing with Judy Collins. As I said, I have never done that before, and I promised and vowed I would never do that again. Um, <laughs> because I wish I had a, a voice even approximating hers or somebody who should be singing publicly. Uh, I've had a lot of wonderful interviews through the years, and certainly many of them have been challenging. Many of them have been delightful. It's been my great privilege to interview extraordinary number of people who are themselves extraordinary. Uh, it's hard to talk about spontaneity because it happens frequently. And so to single out a moment, it's like when people say to me, who is your best interviewer? Who is your most important interviewer or something? It almost seems uh, sacrilegious to try to single out someone along those lines because so many interviews have been in different areas and different subject matter and so forth. But I'm sorry, it was spontaneous and, and they wanted to know what was the uh, embarrassing. embarrassing. Well, that's easy enough. Uh, when I've messed up a name, uh, which I've done a few times, uh, sometimes I've, I've thought that, um, you know, I, I should have gone more into a study of, of people's names because I just have this propensity sometimes to mess up names. And I feel embarrassed about it. Uh, I feel it was ironic because I, I, when Judge Sotomayor was swearing in Kamala Harris, Mm-hmm. And going back in the database, it was interesting hearing a debate on forum between the new vice president and Terrence Hallinan uh, when she decided to run for district attorney against then incumbent Terry Hallinan, and that debate was on forum. But yeah. I was thinking about just how um, embarrassing it's been sometimes. It must have been for Judge Sotomayor because she said she didn't say Kamala, she said Kamala. I heard that, yeah. Yeah, a lot of us heard that, and I've done that. You know, it's been embarrassing with names. Uh, I think it may even hurt people's feelings. I mean, people call me, 
I've had students who've called me Mr. Crazy, you know, or Mr. Krapney or Mr. Kramney, uh, all kinds of things yeah. like that. Uh, and I don't want to embarrass them, but, you know, these things do happen and you get embarrassed. Oh, are, are you kidding? I can I can go on for hours about the various ways people have totally mispronounced my name. So let, we, we won't go into that here. Um, so I so you already said you don't like the question, who's your favorite guest? How about this question instead, then? Um, well, let me answer that in part, Twee. I, I don't want to shy away from it. Okay. Um, okay. It's just I've had so many wonderful people that I've had the great privilege of interviewing. But I confess, writers, because of my background in literature, have always excited mm-hmm. me generally more, I suppose. And interviewing writers has been sort of my metier, I suppose. Uh, and during the early years, I think, I remember talking to Studs Terkel, and I said, who's interviewed more writers? I think I've interviewed maybe as many writers as you have. And he said, Michael, I think you may have interviewed more than I have. And uh, that was a moment of kind of humility. Um, mm. And I and I think of uh, Toni Morrison, I think of John Updike, two writers that I really longed to interview and did have the privilege of interviewing, but also um, Don DeLillo, uh, writers that I had a great deal of respect for and it meant the world to me, Philip Roth, who I interviewed a few times. Um, but also, you know, it's just, it's funny, I was looking in this uh, database of mine and I was looking just at the, at, at the year, uh, 10 years ago, a decade ago, and just for the heck of it, just the names there. How, how do you decide who's on top with these names? Uh, Stephen Sondheim, Twyla Tharp, Patti Smith. Well, that, that had a bad moment, but that's, yeah. that's neither here nor there. Um, Francis Ford Coppola, Gary Snyder, um, Barbara King Salver, Margaret Atwood. I mean, it's an embarrassment of riches. So how do you decide this interview is better than that interview and so yeah. forth? You've interviewed so many people, right? You just, I listed off a bunch at the top. You listed uh, a lot of authors. You've also interviewed Nobel laureates, presidents, um, world leaders, politicians, economists, cultural leaders, actors, celebrities, uh, boxers even. Um, Is there, looking back, is there anyone at all that you wish you had interviewed but never had the chance you know, the first name tweet that comes to mind still is Kissinger. I wanted to interview Henry Kissinger, and it was set up. Uh, Dan Zoll, our senior editor, had set things up, and maybe Kissinger got word that uh, uh, Krasny maybe is going to be tough on you or something along those lines. I don't know, but he said he had a World Affairs Council meeting, and he had to go to it, and he bailed out. He wanted to promote a book that he had written at that time. I would have loved to have uh, Interview And at the time, uh, frankly, I would have loved to have interviewed uh, George Bush Jr. Um, I like sort of getting in the ring with, so to speak, writers who I don't necessarily share uh, political views with because it's a challenge to me to be fair-minded and to challenge them and challenge them in ways that are not sneaky or not necessarily cognitive, but, you know, are realistic. Um, I, I really would have loved... I say this kind of jokingly, but there, there are certain hermits uh, who have not been available for interviews. Like I would have welcomed the opportunity to interview writers like J.D. Salinger or Thomas Pynchon. Mm-hmm. I knew that was never going to happen because they were uh, Salinger was too much of a recluse and Pynchon was somebody who has never come out of whatever he's in, hiding her. Uh, nobody mm-hmm. ever sees him anymore at all. Um, but there are other figures in public life that I would have liked to... I interviewed Condi Rice, for example, um, but I did it at the Monterey Writers uh, and Artists Conference, uh, yeah. and and, for, and I interviewed her with the World Affairs Council uh, in Palo Alto, but for some reason she didn't want to come on the program. I really wanted her mm. in the lion's den, especially yeah. in those years when she was involved in the Iraq War. Um, yeah. Did she ever give you a reason? I find that so interesting that she allowed you to interview her in so many other forums, but not on your own show. I had no uh, explanation for that, but that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Maybe she doesn't like live radio call-in shows. Well, there are certainly a lot of people who are adverse to them. And, and someone said, you know, maybe she doesn't want to come on because someone will call her a war criminal or something along those lines. Um, and you know, those things do happen. You talk about spontaneity, you never know. in a roulette wheel, the calls are screened, but you never know what somebody's really going to bring up. We have high minded listeners. We are very privileged and spoiled in that way, but to some extent, uh, like I said, it's it's a high wire act. 
this is um this is kind of related to what we're talking about here in terms of you know challenges and challenging guests and wanting to have that dialogue with people who have different perspectives. Um, this is a fan all the way from Savannah, Georgia, uh, Michael, who has sent in this question: What's the greatest challenge you face when interviewing a guest? Well, it depends on the guest. Um, I've had some guests who have been uh, surprisingly reticent. I say surprisingly, I'm thinking about David Byrne, for example, who's a wonderful artist, very creative mind, and uh, quite impressive. Uh, but for some reason, uh, he was very closed mouth. He it was like pulling teeth. That's challenging uh, yeah. bec- because, you know, you feel like, what am I going to be doing here? I'm going to be tap dancing. Uh, I remember interviewing Betty for Dan, and she got upset about something and started to walk out. That was pretty challenging. Uh, I managed to lure her back in. Uh, I remember interviewing uh, famous African-American actor, Billy D. Williams, and he also seemed very reticent. And I just asked him, I said, this is a challenging interview. You know, you, you seem to be, I, I expected you to be more um, simply talking. Open. Yeah. Well, not even necessarily open. He just was giving me monosyllabic answers. And he said to me, mm-hmm. my mother died. And she just died yesterday. It was like something out of Camus. And uh, if you know L'Etranger, uh, The Stranger. And I said, I'm so sorry. And, and I said, why are you here? And he said, because Black Expo, which was engineered by a former student of mine, Burial Clay, a name that many probably recall, uh, African-American playwright and wonderful yeah. student of mine. Uh, and Burial had asked him to be there. And so he was there. He was there you know, for uh, his, his Black community. And I said, tell me about your mother. <laughs> and the interview took a whole different route because of that. Um, mm. And suddenly he was talking volubly about his mother and deeply and poignantly about his mother. And it was one of those memory, uh, I mean, poignant, memorable interviews, to be sure. And that speaks to your skill as an interviewer as well, right? Because if you hadn't been open to being spontaneous and just allowing yourself to detour off that list of questions that you probably had before you, that moment might've been lost. I can't do the questions before me. You know, there are, sometimes you'll have a writer, for example, and uh, the public relations office will send you questions and they'll say, you can ask them in this order. <laughs> and what they're, what they're designed to do, of course, is to highlight the book and make people want to buy the book. Um, I usually, I don't mean this to be cavalier, but I usually disregard them or throw them in the trash because they don't necessarily serve me in terms of what I feel is my responsibility. I don't want to sound pompous about it, but it's an important responsibility to bring whatever skills I have and whatever knowledge I have not to be spoon-fed. And that's really what that's all about. That's, that's PR agents spoon-feeding you, flax. Let's talk a little bit about your upbringing and um, your family and your background. This um, viewer wants to know, is it true your father was a butcher or grocery worker? How did that um, and growing up in Cleveland shape you? My grandfather was a butcher. My father's father was a butcher. Um, My father was a factory worker. He worked in an ice cream factory most of his adult life. And that's one of the uh, real tragedies in many respects, because he was someone who very much wanted to be a doctor and uh, wanted, he got a a baccalaureate degree from Ohio State in bacteriology, but never had the ability to afford medical school. Uh, And there were quotas in those days. If you were Jewish, you were actually uh, proscribed in many instances by quotas from being admitted to not only medical school, but law school. It's hard. I tell my students this and they find it hard to believe, but that was a reality that people dealt with. So he went to work in a factory and and stayed there for his life. And it was, he was a, a, a good man, a loving father, a decent human being, but never realized his potential or what he could be. And so what he wanted for his children, and this was very important, was for us to be educated. I have an older brother uh, and an older sister. And we um, were essentially working class kids who uh, did get an education. We all got an education. Um, I got, I became maybe more educated because I wanted to get a master's and a PhD and, and did. But never forgot those roots of mine. Um, I used to joke about Cleveland. and You know, there was a uh, Woody Allen line. I don't think it's in my book, but he said, the world is a beautiful place and life has meaning except for certain parts of Cleveland. And it's kind of a you know, <laughs> silly line in many ways, but uh, it used to resonate for me. 
Uh, and um, I'd make these jokes about Cleveland because Cleveland had a lot of humorous things about it. You know, it had a flammable river, the Cuyahoga River. It had uh, a mayor, Ralph Perk, who turned down an invitation to the White House because it was his bowling night. I mean, they were good fodder for humor growing up in Cleveland and looking back at Cleveland. But it was a pretty tight community, and it was a community that I I look back on with some nostalgia and sentimentality. Uh, There were young people in my neighborhood who had a great deal of impact on me uh, of all varieties. Some of them did well in life. Some of them few of them died in Vietnam um, mm. and, and never came back. Um, and there were some who um, just became very uh, important to me in terms of my youth and, and uh, guiding me in, in all kinds of different ways. The problem was I was a very different kind of kid, um, different from most of the kids in my neighborhood. They liked to spend time under hoods of cars and they were working class kids mostly. And, um, I read poetry <laughs> and I had to keep some of that sort of uh, under guard because, you know, mm. it was sort of sissy to like poetry or to have yeah. sensitivity or to show that kind of more androgynous side or however you want to characterize mm. it. So how would you say that background growing up in Cleveland and also your love for poetry and your love for literature, how has that informed you as an interviewer? It's been key in so many ways because one of the things that drew me to literature and to a life in literature and to being an educator as well as a writer about literature was I wanted to be a novelist, first of all, Um, Mm -hmm. and uh, did a lot of work that really didn't take me to where I wanted to go. And I realized if I had any gifts at all, they were going to be as an educator largely or as a communicator uh, and as a scholar. The reality of wanting to um, wanting to love literature and be passionate about literature and be able to communicate ideas about literature has to do with really a lot of what I do on the air. And let me explain that to you just briefly. Um, literature is a multidisciplinary subject. When you study a novel, for example, or a play or a great work of poetry, you're not only studying language, you're studying history, you're studying culture, you're studying tradition, Mm -hmm. you're studying so much that's embedded in there. And I can teach a novel psychologically or philosophically or anthropologically or even scientifically because a novel is, a really great novel is rich with all of that, all of those disciplines. And if you're curious about a lot of disciplines, and I have been my whole adult life, then literature is, is, is a logical field when you think about it. It was just a field that I didn't know if I was going to make a living in. Um, and I still have students who I feel for even more because uh, jobs and teaching are at a premium and very difficult to come by. And, you know, you want to encourage them and yet at the same time and not discourage them. And yet at the same time, when they come to you and say, uh, gee, wouldn't it be better for me if I, uh, if I learned some things uh, technologically as opposed to studying literature, more likelihood that I get a job, say, well, maybe you shouldn't study literature with the idea that you're going to get a job. Study it for the best mm-hmm. reasons. Hmm. Um, you know, what, what advice would you have for other interviewers? Um, is the burden on you or on the guest this person wants to know? I think it's more on the guest, but there's a kind of halfway mark. Um, I use the example of Jim Lehrer, who used to be of course, the Neil McNeil Lair News Hour and the Lair News Hour. Jim Lair once said to me, uh, I'm uh, superfluous. Uh, the only thing that matters is the person I'm talking to. And Larry King just died, and he used to say the same thing. You know, I think it was Herb Kane who said, Larry King um, never reads the book and takes pride of it. And Krasny always reads the book uh, of the guest he has. Krasny doesn't always read the book. That's not true. But Larry King liked to come in fresh, and I wish I could do that in many instances, just not having... Uh, the necessity put on me or the burden, uh, the onus, because it can be of mm-hmm. being familiar with the book of the author I'm interviewing or the work of that author, what that author has published. So I guess what I'm getting at here is, Twee, that you can't, um, uh, you, you, you can't necessarily be too much in the Jim Lair for me notion of I'm just kind of a blank wall here and the ideas are fed off of me and I'm just asking questions. I'm just an interlocutor. At the same time, I see interviewers 
and this is interesting, Larry King just died. He was talking about all these interviewers who want to let you know how much they know. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's frankly a, uh, that's a handicap of those of us who are educators, I think, in general. But some go overboard to prepare and to let the listeners know or let the guests know that they know a lot. Um, yeah. And, and you know, that, that I don't know if that's a weakness of mine. I just try to bring as much as I can to the table. But I like to move between those two. I like to synthesize those two. I want to be there asking yeah. the right questions. But I also, since I'm an educator, I want to bring whatever knowledge I've been able to glean because it's not yeah. superfluous. And so it's a balance. And it's often a very delicate balance. But you said, what would I advise an interviewer? I would advise an interviewer to use your curiosity and particularly be as well-prepared as you can and listen. You know, it's funny. I've been thinking a lot about Governor Brown recently um, because he did a show on public radio, which many may remember, on KPFA. And he actually asked me if I had any advice. And I said, tailor-made for you, you got to listen more. Jerry was always a big talker, you know. I've been a big talker tonight, and I apologize for that, but it's been... It's always fun talking to Tweefoo. No, I'm 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 playing Larry King tonight. I'm I'm going to let you shine. <laughs> You're shining too, so we can shine <laughs> shine on each other. Is we have actually very good give and take. Uh, we've had a few lunches which have been delightful. Where yeah, yeah. Uh, neither one of us has monopolized because she hasn't been the interlocutor, and we've exchanged <laughs> ideas, and it's been uh, really very mutually gratifying. Uh, if I can speak for you. <laughs> Well, you know, it's, it always amazes me how much we cover in those little one-hour lunches of ours. Um, you know, we must cover at least 20 topics. I, I, I actually went home and counted, uh, counted it up once, and it was, I think we covered 20 topics from politics to economy to culture, you name it, in that one-hour lunch we had, Michael. Well, we're both eclectic and Renaissance people, I like to say, right? I mean, <laughs> broadening our horizons all the time. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. It's healthy. But interviewing, uh, you know, people have asked me to, what's the key to interviewing? Would you like to write a book on interviewing? I don't know. Like I say, I do it sort of almost in an intuitive way or an instinctual way. But I think you have to be curious and you have to listen. And I said to Jerry Brown, Jerry, you have to listen more. But also, it doesn't hurt to have a sense of humor, too. Uh, if you, I mean, we talk about so many serious issues, on, especially now uh, yeah. on, on forum, that now and then it's a good moment and to, for levity, I'll even give a little promo because we're doing a program tomorrow. We've been doing so, a lot of hard news, but uh, Judy Campbell, one of our producers, brought my attention to a writer, songwriter by the name of Michael Cotty, who writes about song lyrics. And he writes about how song lyrics are much more important than people realize they are. And he's kind of an iconoclast and he's a bit mm-hmm. of a, um, uh, a provocateur and a contrarian. And I really enjoyed yeah. reading what he was doing with a lot of these lyrics because he was slamming a lot of them. He'll be a guest on forum tomorrow, but you know, today was all about environmental issues of Joe Biden's and uh, what he rolled out today. We were right in, in, in connection with, uh, with that news story. You know, this is a good question here. Have you ever had a moment in 28 years where you asked yourself, why am I doing this? And how did you get through it? You do have those moments. I've had, I'm not using the second person. I, I've had those moments. I think, even if you love your job, and I love the work I do, uh, you have those moments, um, especially when you've got a guest on who can be difficult. Or I've had a few who've even been hostile and woke up on the wrong side of the bed or who knows what was wrong. Um, yeah. You know, you have your war stories. Uh, I, I think I maybe have fewer than some. But the reality is, you know, you say that from time to time, and you just have to get back in gear. I mean, there's a kind of whole philosophy in that. You know, there, there are so many moments like that in life where you ask yourself, what the hell am I doing this for? Why am I putting myself through this? Um, I'm not just talking about like going to the dentist or, you know, those kinds of things which you feel you have to do. I'm talking about, you know, getting in, say, a conversation that you think, how did I get roped into this conversation? You know, it might be on a public transit or it might be in a grocery store. Somebody yeah. suddenly, and Bukowski writes about this. He says, he was at the ballpark and, the person who he knew he didn't want to talk to and at least wanted to engage or be engaged by came up to him and started engaging him in a conversation. There are those moments that you have in life and sometimes you just have to get through them, ride them up. I agree. I agree. And, you know, and, and I think it's, um, and I know that, that during those moments, uh, you kind of have to force yourself also to think, wait, 
I'm in a really great position here. I get to interview all these people that I would pay to go here speak and they come to me and I get to interview them. I know that for me, that kind of kept me going through some of the tough days when, when I did have those questions, like, why, why am I doing this? <laughs> I have more of those feelings that you just described. I've had more of those through the years, many, many more predominantly yeah. than I have those, what am I doing here with certain guests and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, how have the um, disruptions of the last year changed how you go about producing a show like Forum? And has it changed the kinds of guests you're able to get as well? It has. And I think uh, that's all probably to the good. I certainly hope it's to the good. You know, we've been for quite some time. Uh, and, and I, you know, not in any way trying to sound self-serving. It's just I've been dedicated a long time to, I suppose, what you could call the ideals of diversity and uh, I, I was teaching a lot of ethnic writers really early on, uh, Forgotten Pages of American Literature. I actually named the course back in the 70s and was trying to, as a professor and as someone on a hiring committee, make sure that we were hiring people uh, of color and of different ethnicities. And I think, you know, these tragedies that have occurred have probably made us either more judicious and more aware, more hyper aware, perhaps, of the necessity of being instrumental in being as responsive as possible to the fights for social justice and the necessity to recognize. I mean, I think we've always been on the right side, frankly, and always tried to bring different sides to the table and represent different sides, but also strive to hear from voices that were authentic and voices that really represented what we could call, I suppose, good values and the right values, judicious values. Mm -hmm. It's been, it's been a struggle, though, because, you know, like I told you, when I started back in the early 90s, I, st I like to put people on who had conservative views. And public radio was very much, a, especially in the Bay Area, uh, the listenership was uh, didn't have many conservatives. And I had to, like I said uh, earlier, make listeners aware, you want to hear what these people have to say. You may not agree with them, but if it can be done in a civil way and in a thoughtful way, uh, if you can keep the discourse on a higher level, don't you want to know how they think? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, during the Trump years, for example, I would have loved to have had some of those people on from the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of anti-Trump people who were former Republicans and former diehard Republicans. We had yeah. people like George Will and people from the Lincoln Brigade and so forth. Uh, and I often challenge them with, you know, what about before Trump and, you know, and many of them said, we're still conservatives. We still believe in conservatives. And most of them did, in fact. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the people like Rick Wilson and Steve Schmidt. Mm -hmm. um, they remained Republicans, and that was important to hear. They just felt that Trump was the wrong person for the job of the highest office in the land. And I would have loved to have heard from Mike Pompeo. I would have loved to have had uh, him uh, on the other microphone across from me, or Trump himself, for that matter. But we ran into problems along those lines. I don't mind telling you. I mean, we certainly tried hard to get those voices. We tried hard during the Bush administration. We had a much easier time getting people during the Clinton and Obama administrations, as you might mm -hmm. imagine. Sure. So that was yeah. the reality and remains, yeah. I think. Yeah. Well, they know that California is still a predominantly blue state, and I think it's very hard for, for, for us, I say us, um, including from when I was still hosting Newsroom, to get um, conservatives and members of the Republican Party on the show. So I absolutely understand where you're coming from uh, on that point. What, what, what's your, you talk about the last four years and the Trump administration, and it, it has been um, an incredible, unprecedented era in our history. And there's, there's no question that we are so divided now as a nation. Um, what is your prognosis for civil discourse and a plural democracy and getting to a place where we can have those civil discussions again and be willing to listen to the other side, as you say, um, without, without, maybe I shouldn't say without judgment, while reserving judgment and really hearing the other side. It's such an important question and one I don't have any tea leaves for. Um, I confess I wish I could be more sanguine and more hopeful, but I keep hearing the voice of John Dos Passos, a writer who people don't study much as they used to, um, probably because he was very much on the left. Um, but he was also a great writer. He wrote the trilogy, The Big Money. Uh, and he said, okay, we're two nations. I mean, almost as if I have to resign myself to that fact. Um, he was speaking then about the left and the right, largely, of course. Uh, 
And we're so polarized now that it does feel, especially during the Trump years, like two nations. Uh, one is hopeful that things will perhaps dissipate under the Biden administration. Uh, there won't be, there certainly won't be a lot of the, um, whatever you think of Trump, by the way, and, and I know he, in the Bay Area, uh, he has mostly detractors, but there are those people who make the argument for Trump, people I, I have affection for and respect, and I like to hear them out. Um, but whatever your thoughts are about his infantilism or his temper tantrums or his rancor and all the things that he did that did lead to polarization, and his lying, frankly, and we had to call that lying, lying, because that's what it was. You can still hope that somehow Americans will be fair and will somehow move in the right direction towards some kind of unity. You know, having people like John Meacham on has been somewhat inspiring because they talk about our better angels. They talk about yeah. the historians are important to hear from uh, in this, especially really thoughtful historians who have something to say about the nature of, um, of how we've gone through other terrible crises, the civil war, for example, and somehow we've been able to overcome them, uh, strike some kind of semblances of unity. And we came together in 9-11, and we come together often during severe kinds of crises. Maybe it might take something like that. We're facing climate change in ways that may bring us together in ways we can't even predict. I don't want to be a tea leaf reader here and prognosticate in that sense, but I think there's some very hard mountains to climb because of, frankly, because of the lie that this election was stolen. And there are people who believe in Donald Trump and believe in him almost in a messianic way. And when he said the election was stolen, they accept it as gospel. They accept it as God's truth. Yeah. That's that's a hard thing to overcome. I noticed that the Proud Boys now are kind of backing away from Trump because they thought he would give them a pardon or because he uh, said things that were conciliatory and they thought it was, uh, and, and, and that's true for some of the hardline, I guess, activists or whatever you want to call them, the insurrectionists who descended on the Capitol in that putsch. But it's going to be a, a long slog ahead. And I hope we have the temperament for it. I hope we have the appetite for it. And I hope we have the decency that it's going to take and the humility. As I'm listening to you talk, uh, the long list of people that you've interviewed, um, the ones you were able to get and the ones that you were not able to get, and all the changes that have happened over the last 28 years, You've discussed so many changes, transformations in culture, in politics, in the economy, in the health of this nation, not just emotional health, but with the pandemic, our physical health as well. I'm wondering, how has covering all that change changed you, Michael? Well, it's hard to say, but it certainly has changed me. I may have changed with age, of course, uh, as we all do, but... Uh, you go through those different phases of life. Uh, I mean, you know, to this new identity as a grandfather, I'm still kind of trying to latch on to <laughs> and, and internalize. Um, but I, th I think learning and opening up my mind and being educated to so many different things has, if anything, just broadened my perspectives and widened the horizons of what I'm able to see and what I'm able to take in. I used to joke uh, after I finished a PhD and got that lofty title of doctor. Uh, my wife's uh, uncle said to me, why don't you be a real doctor? <laughs> Sounds like a bad Jewish joke, but um, <laughs> I wanted, to, I realized how ignorant I was, actually. The more you learn and the more educated you become, is paradoxically, the more you realize how much you don't know. And knowledge is infinite. And consequently, I've realized that I've learned a hell of a lot and my vistas have opened and I see things. Uh, there's a wonderful poem called Planetarium by Adrian Rich where she says, it's about a woman astronomer and she says, what we see, we see and seeing is changing. And, you know, you feel yourself when you see differently, go through certain changes um, and it's mutating and it's morphing and it's uh, the kind of metamorphosis of life which takes you into different phases. Uh, I am at that stage of life now, for example, where um, I'm a lot more, I suppose, sentimental, a lot more emotional, um, but I see things more holistically. I, I guess if I had to really pin it down, because I've, I've looked at so much uh, of, as you point out, 
so many different subjects from so many different prisms and so many ways of looking at the blackbird as the old metaphor used to go, you know, and yeah. it's, it's, it's broadened my, my thinking yeah. in ways I hadn't imagined. For me too, you know, the older I get and the more I experience, the more I find that I, I see things in more grays now, not just black and white, but I see a lot of the grays. Um, we've received a number of questions um, from viewers, all kind of on this same theme. Now that you're retiring, Michael, what will you do uh, with your time? What are your plans? And and do you plan to make a lot of public appearances as well as a guest rather than an interviewer? You know, it's interesting. Those of you who may have noticed and picked up, Twee says viewers, I say listeners, (laughs) just force a habit. (laughs) We're on YouTube, my friend. (laughs) It's funny because when I, I did a few newsrooms, you may have seen, uh, I filled in not that long ago and did a few of them, and I had to catch myself saying viewers, or saying yeah. listeners instead of viewers. Um, well, I, I have a book I'm writing, and I want to finish this book. It's, it's very important to me. It's a book on uh, what some may think an arcane subject, honor, but it's an important subject to me and one that I've been thinking a lot about, uh, and not only honor in terms of trying to live an honorable life and what it means to be honorable as best you can determine that or live up to that, but also some of the toxic sides of honor and honor killings and what does honor mean to, you know, members of the Ku Klux Klan and honor among thieves. And it just got me on a kind of uh, uh, tear, if you will, when something invades like that, I feel a book has to be written or a program has to be done. And, uh, I want to explore other possibilities. Uh, I've been talking about maybe a podcast or um, not the grueling day-to-day preparation that's involved in doing a program five days a week, but something uh, more manageable. uh, And uh, What would you do a podcast on? Or have you thought about like a certain theme or? um... I'm not sure. Uh, That's a good question because uh, I think on the one hand, maybe like to do something on, on politics, but then maybe something on literature, maybe something more eclectic, like what I've been doing all along uh, on forum. Uh, I have to sort of process that and work it out. But there's also, you know, the private sector beckon you, and you've done very well there, and I think you've made the adjustment and like it. And I've done some things in the private sector through the years, and I'd welcome the opportunity maybe to do some more things. I'm not sure what that would be, but uh, I, I love going into uh, the private sector and, and learning a great deal from just the different cultures that I was exposed to that I did work in. Um, and as far as uh, doing public events, I'll probably always, as long as they want me, um, you know, Amy Tan mentioned the Kidney Foundation luncheon, which I've enjoyed doing for many, many years. A former yeah. student of mine uh, hosted this year's, but I did the dinner the night before, uh, Kelly Corrigan. Uh, who many of you know, was the host of the luncheon this year. Uh, it was virtual. Uh, I'd done sorts of plowshares, uh, mm-hmm. veterinary, uh, the veteran organization for many years. As Amy Tan said, I'm a sucker for doing things for animal uh, rights and so forth. And it's just part of, uh, part of who I am and will remain. I think it's a wonderful plan for the next stage of your life. Uh, a friend of mine uh, likes to say he's not in retirement, but in rewirement. He's just rewiring his life and doing other things now. An amazing hour spent with you. Um, much, much luck to you in your retirement. And I, I know that I, that, that I represent a lot of people, if I may have the liberty of saying so, when I say thank you for all that you have done for the Bay Area. And thank you, Tweet. So good of you to do this. And thanks to my colleagues at KQED. And thanks also to the listeners of the Forum Program all of these years for your devotion to the program, for your involvement in it, for your interest, and for your sustained support. Can't thank you enough. Yes, and thanks to our audience and all of you for joining us tonight for this tribute to Michael Krasny. A reminder that you can catch Michael's last forum program on February 12th. That's just a little more than two weeks away. This program has been held in partnership with KQED. I'm Tui Vu, and now this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. 
If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.